Hello and welcome to The Tree Project, Dorothy Hogg Life and Legacy podcast series. I'm Ebba Goring from the Scottish Goldsmiths Trust and this podcast series has been developed to highlight the impact and legacy of the late Dorothy Hogg MBE and her influential time leading the jewellery and silversmithing department at Edinburgh College of Art. The participants in this project were selected by Dorothy alongside her friend, curator Amanda Gain. For more information on this podcast and all those involved, please head over to our website, www.scottishgoldsmithstrust.org. In this episode, I'm joined by Colleen O'Doul. Thanks for joining me. Let's start with introductions and what it is that you do now. My name is Colleen O'Doul. I'm a lecturer in the National College of Art and Design in Dublin, and I work in the, it's the Department of Design for Body and Environment. And within that, we, we run a jewellery and objects programme. So it's quite similar to the uh, jewellery and silversmithing programme that we would have had in Edinburgh. I graduated from Edinburgh in 1996. I'm still a practising metal worker, silversmith, and at the moment I'm just setting up a workshop at home. So since I moved back to Dublin, I've been, a, I've been moving around into different workshop buildings. It's a challenge to, to find a workshop. So when a city, when an economy is doing well, it's always hard for the artists to find workshops. So I'm building my own workshop at the moment. Thinking back into your time at Edinburgh College of Art, describe for us that time you spent there. What are the things that you remember? It could be details, the sounds, the smells, the quirks of it, but also what interested you in specialising in jewellery and silversmithing and also reflect a little bit about your relationship with Dorothy and the other staff members there. I guess when I went to Edinburgh, I was initially thinking of doing painting or doing sculpture. I think when probably when I first went in, I was looking at painting. And then during the first year, we did the block and sculpture, and I was really intrigued by the challenges working in three dimensions. And then I did the block of uh, silversmithing and jewellery up in the jewellery department with Dorothy. And then I very quickly made my mind up that that's what I was going to specialise in. And I think it was probably the sort of attention to detail about the materials and processes that I really liked. It was a very atmospheric department as well when you walked in. All the flames on the benches, all the torches uh, with their pilot lights burning and a general kind of air of uh, industriousness and busyness about the place. And I think they really put a lot of effort into teaching the first years, a lot of kind of enthusiasm and attention. So and Dorothy used to come down and help teach that block, which she saw as an important activity for recruitment, but it, you know, made a good impression on you as a first year coming in that she was interested in what you were doing. I was in a class of maybe about 10 students and I was the only one who specialized in silversmithing. So I think it was during the third year or maybe towards the end of the second year we could choose. So at that point, I would have been working a lot with Bill Kirk and Bill was a really excellent craftsman, quite a strict, kind of severe guy, but a really, really excellent craftsman that we were looking to work with. Bill would have been the one teaching me about silversmithing techniques like raising and hammering and things like that. So at that point, from that point onwards, I was more focused on the sort of objects and the sheet metal work than on jewellery, as in things that would go in the body. And at the time, we did a lot of drawing in the programme, which really suited me. So I actually chose to do illustration as a second subject as well. So I was doing even more drawing than the rest of the students we could choose to go off to places to do drawing and research for the day. So one place I went to was the uh, shipyards in Glasgow. Dorothy had 
I think was a friend of her husband's who worked there. So she was able to fix up to get me um, access to the shipyards for the day so I could go down there drawing. That was an interesting one to see how they were building. The modular construction of these massive ships was really intriguing. Another place I spent a lot of time was in the museum down in Chambers Street. I was particularly intrigued with all the inlaid Iranian metalwork down there. So that's kind of came through in my degree show work, looking at how you could inlay different colours of metal into each other. Thinking back, were there any kind of projects or visiting lectures that uh, stayed with you, influenced what you do now? Yeah, I know as a teacher now, we get the VL in and they bring a sparkle of magic, their enthusiasm and joy. And the students all, all perk up when they get to meet these uh, shiny new people. We had a great range of people coming in to work with us in Edinburgh. One person in particular was um, Mizuko Yamada, a Japanese metal worker and jeweler who came and did a talk when I was in my final year in Edinburgh. I think Mizuko at the time was doing a residency down at the RCA in London. And she came up to visit ECA and did a lecture. Subsequently, Musical came back and spent time working in Edinburgh as a resident. After I left Edinburgh, worked for a few years, and then I was thinking about going back to do master's study. I thought back to where, you know, where could I go to? I, w- I was quite interested in going to study in Germany, perhaps. But then I thought about Musical's lecture and the fantastic metalwork that she'd shown in Japan. So they were doing large-scale, three-dimensional, free-form hammerwork in the art school in Tokyo where Musical had studied say the work I've been doing with Bill Kirk was symmetrical round forms mainly. So the idea that you could do um, kind of free form non-symmetrical hammer work was really intriguing to me. And then the other thing in Japan was they were doing lots of inlay and working with different kinds of colours of metal and things like that. So I was very interested to study there and I contacted Musico. She made an introduction for me to one of the lectures in the art college and then that helped me a lot on my getting to go to Japan to study. It's interesting, there's kind of themes that have arisen through just even having this first interviews. And one of them was Dorothy's sort of very individual approach with her students and how she could identify the different ways that people are learning and opportunities for them. Whether they were wanting to be a silversmith or a jeweler or do something completely different, she was still very much supportive of that. And is there anything you would like to reflect on the style of teaching or the kind of ethos in the department? Others have mentioned having to be in there from dawn till dusk, kind of working away. I don't know if you have any other reflections about the way that you were taught. There was definitely a high expectation of attendance and and engagement with the programme, which was good. Particularly that year group that I was in, there was a lot of really driven people in it. Maeve and Nicola, who you've already interviewed. So it was a great cohort to be with. Maeve in particular used to come in really early in the morning. I was very impressed at the time. I remember Dorothy telling me that she would get up at, it was something like six in the morning or half five, and she'd work at her bench for an hour or two before coming into college. So this was her time in the morning when it was peaceful at home, and she'd do a bit of work at the bench before coming in. And I remember uh, being impressed by that, that this was determined to carve out some time to kind of continue her own uh, working practice. It was strict and there was an expectation, but there was a lot of kind of pastoral care as well. I think Dorothy was very kind and encouraging with students and things like that. And she'd kind of check in with you to see how you were doing. So that was good. I think she put a lot of effort into trying to encourage people after they graduated too. And that was and is unusual that somebody would take the time to do that. It's such a busy job that you're consumed by your present students. So to kind of reach out and make connections for your past students as well, that was a very generous thing that she was taking the time to do that. 
Now thinking about your career pathway from that moment of graduating, you've mentioned that you went to do your master's in Tokyo. Tell us a bit more about that and then how you got to where you are now. I finished in Edinburgh in 1996 and then for about two or three years I was working in lots of different kinds of jobs. I, I'd spent some time in India and the Philippines designing in industry and factories in a silverware factory in India and in a furniture factory in the Philippines and I was working back in Ireland. I worked in a sculpture foundry in Dublin for a while doing big public sculpture and in a jewellery factory doing production jewellery like Celtic jewellery work for a lot of it being exported to the United States platter rings and things like that and I was thinking about you know going back and doing some more study as I mentioned earlier it was I thought back to the lecture that Mizuko Yamada had done so Mizuko kindly introduced me to Professor Miyata who was the head of the department at Tokyo National University of Fine Arts and Music as it was called at the time in Japanese it's uh, shortened to Tokyo Geidai and that's the oldest art school in, in Japan it goes back to the 1870s I think it is when they set up the craft departments there the first people who were running the metalwork department in the choking department those guys had been making sword furniture for the samurai you know the samurai uh, armor so it had this very old kind of metalwork history that goes back into the Edo period they were still teaching a lot of those old traditional processes but in a very sort of a, the modern take on it so the metalwork department there was split up into three areas. It was uh, Chokin, Chukin, and Tankin. So Chokin is the metal carving departments. They'd specialize in inlaying and uh, mixed colored metalwork processes and uh, repousse techniques. So those guys would have originally been making the sword furniture. Today, they'd be making things more like jewelry and small objects. And then they had a Chukin department, which was metal casting. And they would have been the workers who were making say like buddhist statues back in in the past nowadays they're making you know modern cast sculptures however they're using a, an old process where they make the casting molds out of clay so it's a sort of a handmade rather than using say like ceramic shell or high temperature plasters they're using this very recyclable clay material that you know similar to what would have been done hundreds of years ago so i was in the tanking department which is the a silversmithing and blacksmithing department so they were doing hammer work in sheet metal and also iron work. Those guys, their history would have gone back to the people who were making armor. If you look at the samurai armor that you'd see in a museum, all those face guards, they're, they're three-dimensional. They're made out of quite thin sheet metal work and they're hammered and raised in the same way that you'd make a teapot or something like that. So in the department, we had a, a display cupboard there. Rather than having teapots or things like that they have these original different stages of how you would make a, a samurai face mask out of a thin sheet of iron within that department in the kind of 50s in the post-war 50s and 60s the tutors in the department were making animals in copper and iron and things like that so these were things maybe say 30 40 centimeters high that kind of size and then around in the 1970s in that department they started to work with tig welding and that in, enabled them to work really big. So a lot of the tutors while I was there, they were making big sculpture, the kind of size of stuff that you put outside a train station, you know, many meters high, but it, with that hammered sort of sheet metalwork process. So really large scale animals and, and figurative sculpture using silversmithing techniques, but on a, on a sort of a massive scale. Within the training program, we do things like make animals out of one sheet of metal. So while I was there, they brought 
rabbits into the department for a week. So we had loads of rabbits running around the place. You had to draw the rabbits and then you'd make a clay model of the rabbits. And then from your clay model, you'd make a um, fiberglass copy of it. So this is something that you could kind of keep and work with for a couple of months as you took a big sheet of copper, a big oval kind of shaped sheet of copper and hammered it up into the shape of this, uh, this rabbit. So it would take about two months. And I guess... I was intrigued by the ability to do that kind of free form work, but I also, having worked in the bronze foundry in Dublin, I knew that that it would be a difficult thing to bring back to Europe. It was it's such a slow method of working that the person paying for it would have to really understand and buy into the heritage of it. It, it it's a beautiful way of working, making that massive uh, sheet metal work, but I think it is a bit slower and more difficult than um, than casting processes. While I was there, I specialized in more vessels and things like that. And I got really into the whole colored metalwork area. So that's what I, I did a doctorate there and did research about how all the coloring and patination techniques and that. And I was looking at doing sort of multicolored inlaid phases and things like that with different kinds of metals combined together. I just love that image of those rabbits and everyone drawing them and everyone having to make them in all these different materials. That's fascinating. And I had heard about the training a bit in Japan, but not the detail like that thinking now after your time in japan what happened next so i finished my doctorate in 2005 and i was searching around for some employment and i got offered two jobs one in savannah georgia and one in glasgow in scotland teaching and doing some research in the art school there in the end i think i was thinking about the climate that savannah georgia might be nicer nicer climate to live in but in the end it was in the interview in Glasgow with Jack Cunningham he was very encouraging about me continuing my own practice and very interested in what I was doing that was what drew me to Glasgow so I worked in Glasgow for about two and a half years it was a great city to work in really I loved working in the art college working opposite the Macintosh building and it was a real treat to be able to go in it's such a shame what happened there subsequently I was working with Anna Gordon while I was there, who's also an ECA graduate. She's head of the department now. It was a really fruitful time while I was working in Glasgow. I got involved in a number of commissions while I was there, one of which was through the incorporation of goldsmiths, the Silver of the Stars project, where 10 silversmiths based in Scotland or Scottish silversmiths were paired up with 10 Scottish celebrities. And I was paired up with Billy Connolly. And uh, Billy had just finished making a, a TV show in Australia where he'd gone around Australia on a three-wheeled Harley trike. At the time, I was living in Partick in Glasgow, near where Billy had grown up, and I had read his biography as part of the research. And there was also a Harley dealer in that part of Glasgow. So I was able to go down to the um, dealer and spend time drawing their bikes and studying the motorbikes, which was really useful. So I designed up a teapot, which was based on the teardrop gas tank of the motorbike and also like a sugar bowl that was based on the headlights and there was various kind of components that inspired this motorbike teapot so it was good fun got some lovely pictures of billy connolly with the teapot on his swing in his house in scotland so that was that was a really nice way to finish the project as part of that project we got to travel a good bit for the exhibition opening so i got to go to one in the hermitage in st petersburg in russia which was a real treat and curators took us back into the storerooms in the back of the Hermitage, where they've got these phenomenal metalwork collections from all across Russia. Really amazing. So besides the, the joy of the commission and the experience of making that, we got some, some great access in some of the places that we went to for the opening. So it was a really great project. 
Another commission I did there was to make a chalice for St. Mungo's Cathedral in Glasgow. And it was a, one of the uh, reverends there had passed away. And he had been very involved in kind of ecumenical matters in the city of Glasgow, cross community projects and things like that. So his widow was very keen on Irish silversmith making something for the um, cathedral in Glasgow. That was very touching to go along to the service where they were using it for the first time and to see something that you'd spent months making and to see it. I guess a lot of modern silversmithing maybe doesn't get used. Often they get put on display. So it's great to make something that's genuinely being used every week and is, you know, where the function and the ritual is really important to the design of the object. After your time in Glasgow, you mentioned before in a previous conversation about doing a bit of a residency in Edinburgh. Yeah, while I was studying in Japan, I was doing uh, research on how these traditional alloys and patination processes were done in Japan. So I was looking at Japanese language sources and talking to Shokunin, the, the sort of traditional Japanese craftspeople who are experts in that area. Some Japanese craftspeople do that patination themselves. And then some people get experts who just do the finishing and patination work. So I was talking to those people and also getting a lot of really good support from the professors in the art college. The other part of the research I wanted to do was to look at how all those materials and processes had spread outside of Japan. So in the kind of 1800s, after Japan opened up in the 18, say 1850s, there was various European experts were brought into Japan to help them modernize their mining and military and things like that. So there was a published accounts by these people of the time they'd spent in Japan, describing the kind of metalwork processes and their interactions with Japanese craftspeople and things like that. So you had people like, say, Christopher Dresser went to Japan and he collected a lot of Japanese metalwork. And because of his expert knowledge, he was writing down what he was looking at with a lot of detail. And then, say, his collections of metalwork were subsequently sold onto Tiffany, who then did big collections of Mokumegane work and Japanese kind of inlaid inspired metalwork which they won loads of prizes for in the 1890s and up to around 1900. Tiffany and Christophe and people like that were doing work inspired by that. I wanted to go back and look at the original um, sources and, and research and papers that these people had published. So I went to Edinburgh for a couple of months and did a residence in the Art College, which enabled me to access the National Museum of Scotland. That was a really good opportunity to do that kind of European-based research while also being able to continue doing a bit of my own practice in the Art College and making their and then uh, reconnecting with people in, in Scotland. So, yeah, it was a really fun time and a, a nice opportunity to hang out with Dorothy and Sue and Grant McCaig was working there at the time. And so it's a good time to be in Edinburgh. So nice to hear about that time going back to the department, sort of touchstone, if you like. Were you doing any teaching there? And do you think your experience in Japan inspired others to do the same? I did do some lecturing there. I actually, I did some lecturing the year after I left Edinburgh in 1997. Dorothy invited me to do a little bit of teaching. So straight away, she had me in doing bits of teaching with her, which was really nice. You need to sort of build up your CV to get these opportunities. So getting little bits of encouragement like that really helped me get work in the future. I did some lecturing while I was doing that residency, some teaching, and I did some talks about Japan. And then subsequently, when I was working in Glasgow, Dorothy did a little one-day mini-symposium about Japanese metalwork, and Mizuko was back over, and both of us did talks. And I know that there are very good links between Scotland and Japan. So Glasgow, Edinburgh, and Dundee, the staff have very strong links with Japan, doing exhibitions and educational links, and Japanese students coming to study in Scotland and vice versa. 
so yeah, hopefully uh, me talking about that did encourage and make it seem more accessible to people. Mention about doing some work in the Philippines. And I know that Maeve and Nicola also mentioned that, and they mentioned it as something that they got to do from a contact that Dorothy had. Was yours something separate, or was that an opportunity that you got through being at Edinburgh College of Art? Yeah, it was a contact Dorothy had who was supplying, I think it was like industrial advice to a company in the Philippines, so equipment and advice. The guy at their pride, he was looking for designers to bring into the company. They were making all kinds of furniture, sort of luxury furniture with a strong kind of, it was a mixture of sort of European style furniture and Asian influence furniture and objects made out of local materials like rattan and coconut shell inlays and things like that as well. So it was a, it was a wide range of stuff. He was particularly interested in developing new surface finishing techniques and patination and, and just trying to bring in, an, in a fresh eye in terms of making in the factory. The funny thing in the factory was they were making their own saw blades. So from a jeweler's perspective, this is a story I like to tell to the students when they're starting to use jeweler saw blades as they snap hundreds of them. We in, in jewellery, we use these really fine saw blades, which are, you know, about as thick as a thread and they're extremely easy to snap. So when you're starting off, you break loads of them. And in this factory, it was Cebu, which is right in the middle of the Philippines. And although it has a big uh, tourist industry, it's fairly remote. There was a guitar factory on the island. So they would get guitar strings, steel guitar strings from the factory and a tiny little chisel and chisel little teeth into the guitar strings to make their own saw blades. So they're lovely saw blades with a round back on them and great for doing tricket inlay work and things like that. But if you snapped one, you had to spend sort of five or 10 minutes making yourself a new saw blade. And that really impressed me how quickly these guys could make their saw blades and also how long they could make them last. Thinking where we left off with you teaching at Glasgow with Jack Cunningham, what happened after that? I was working in Glasgow. I was looking for a way to continue the research I'd been working on in Japan. And initially I looked at setting up a research project between Glasgow School of Art and the University of Glasgow under the Art and Humanities Research Council grants. The feedback from the AHRC at the time was that they really liked the project that we were proposing, but they didn't see the link between the art school and the university as being strong enough. And I asked around and a few people suggested to me that Sheffield would be a great place to do that project. So I contacted Sheffield Hallam University and within the one faculty, they had the art college area, including a really good uh, metalwork and jewellery department. And they also had a, um, an engineering department, which had a material science research institute in it. So that made it really easy to set the project up and it would be well supported with all the relevant kind of equipment and knowledge. I ended up being introduced to a, a researcher there called Howell Jones, a Welsh material scientist. And Howell had just finished a project developing non-tarnishing silver alloys with one of the uh, big silverware companies in Sheffield. So he was very enthusiastic and had a lot of knowledge and expertise in that area. You're looking at the very top thin surface layer of the metal and how the oxides form or how the colors develop on it. So he just spent quite a few years working on projects like that. So it really made sense to base the project there. So I moved down to Sheffield and ended up initially just for three years, but ended up staying there for 12 years. It's a great city for metal workers, full of sort of silversmiths and silversmithing firms. So you've got all the subsidiary trades. You've got spinners and polishers and platers, and you've got some big manufacturing companies who have things like big rollers. So when we were doing the alloy research, we were able to 
get ingots continuously cast and then rolled out into large format sheets and things like that. That'd be quite hard to do anywhere else in the UK, really. Maybe down in Birmingham a bit. I think on a European scale, Sheffield is quite unique in the kind of mixture of trades that it has and the sort of work you can do there. While I was there, I was working in Yorkshire Art Space, which is a really great facility in the city with a load of silversmiths. Got uh, Chris Knight, Marie Hansen, Brett Payne, Keith Tyson. You got the silversmiths starter studio. You got a load of early career, mid-career, and kind of more senior silversmiths, so it's a very supportive community. So lots of ability to sort of get advice from people, and also you can work there late at night hammering, making loud noises, and using flame. That's quite a hard thing to replicate. I think Sheffield is probably more forgiving for that kind of noisy work than other cities because of the history of of the place. While I was in Sheffield, in terms of the making I was doing, initially I was working a lot with those alloys, It was great because of the industry in Sheffield. I was able to access some big rollers and big bits of sheet in these unusual alloys. Shakado, which is a copper and gold alloy, and Shibuichi, copper, silver alloy. So the first pieces I was making were raised and sunk bowls. So working with quite thick sheet and hammering bowls. So stretching them out, thinning them out, sinking them. Trying to look at different kinds of ways of uh, patinating them using the traditional formulas. Trying to develop sort of patterns on the surface of the metal and things like that. I was working with these alloys, making different kinds of uh, coloured bowls with patterns on them. We started to look at how can we find other ways to join these different types of metal together. So me and Howell went to visit a research institute in Sheffield, which specialised in welding and joining techniques. We were, I think we were going to look at the sintering processes they had, like powder metal sintering processes. And on the way out of the factory, the guy who was showing us around said, um, oh, have you ever seen friction stir welding? It's a process they use for joining aluminium together where they get something like a blunt tool in a milling machine and drive it down into the metal. So it looks something like a blunt drill bit. You can imagine it sticks down into the metal. And because the tool is pressing against the metal, it heats the metal up until it's red hot. And then this tool can traverse through the metal, spinning. You can imagine like clay or something like that. The metal, when it gets hot, is plastic in the way that clay would be you know, soft, so you can mix it together. And it can join sheets together. So it's great for things like trains or airplanes or NASA use it on the fuel tanks for the space shuttles. Big, if you're trying to do big long wells in aluminium, it's a really good process for joining sheets together. It produces really strong wells. When we were looking at the machine, I said to the guy, could you stack up different types of metal on this and weld them together? And he's like, oh, yeah, we could try it. And luckily, this guy, Stephen, he was into knife making as a hobby. So he had this sort of pastime of making Damascus steel and things like that. He managed to get some time off his boss. And this was a machine that I think the charge was about £10,000 a day to hire it for research purposes. So we managed to get a few hours of research time on this machine, stack up different layers of metal and then friction stir welded together so that produced some lovely patterns in the metal kind of different from the traditional japanese mokumegane patterns it looked more like a stirred pattern like something you get when the barista makes your fancy coffee with the nice pattern on the top of it you get these sort of swirly patterns that you can make a little bit more liquid or fluid than something you get in a traditional mokume and crucially you were joining and patterning the metal at the same time which sort of took out one of the steps that you do usually for these Japanese metalwork things. That turned into quite a big project for quite a few years. We were working with a really nice engineering company in Sheffield who were involved in the production of machines for this process. So it was great to work with engineers and people from different areas 
the guys in this engineering firm had a really good way of thinking through problems in a very logical way. And so working with the engineers and working with the material scientists and then bringing in the art and design stuff was really great sort of interdisciplinary collaboration. We collaborated with quite a few different kinds of companies like jewellery, luxury watch companies, luxury mobile phone companies, up to yacht companies and things like that where we were doing uh, prototyping and development work with for this material. Sounds really experimental, Colleen, and I bet these companies, you know, it would also give them something really exciting to look at to be able to also demonstrate what their equipment can do by you trying all these new things. And so nice that you had Steve, who was just happy to experiment, because I think often when you go into industry, it can be quite daunting and they've got their cassette ways of doing things. You meet someone who is just happy to have a bit of a play with it or try something new that's just so gratuitous. Absolutely, yeah. We did some nice coins as well with the Sheffield Assay Office commemorate the women of steel from the Second World War, the women who worked in the steel industry there during the war. I think that that was a key thing in working in research was to try and find somebody who would give you access to the equipment and processes, to try and find somebody who had some enthusiasm for what you were proposing. Because often we were working from the kind of art and design side of things. You were often working with lower no budget for the initial parts of the research and often the equipment you're trying to access is very expensive to use. I remember talking to somebody once in a coating place and they were working say with them um, Rolls-Royce and Boeing and people like that to do coatings for jet engines. We were trying to persuade them to let us have a go in their equipment. If you can find somebody who's enthusiastic and sees the potential in that, working with Stephen in, in the TWI in Sheffield was really good to find a partner like that. The guys at Rotary Engineering in Sheffield as well were really always enthusiastic and had a really good way of thinking through problems, as I said, and ability to produce the machines. So if you can work with somebody who's helping you design and make the machines as well as as, uh, make the materials, that's really useful. Obviously, you spent quite a long time in Sheffield and then you decided to go back to Ireland. So in 2019, a job came up in Dublin and in NCAD in Dublin. I guess I was interested in moving back to Ireland. It seemed like a good opportunity to do it. And also Brexit was in the back of my mind. So uh, Brexit definitely making things more difficult from a research point of view for collaboration and funding and things like that. So uh, that was a little bit of a push as well. So in, I think it was November 2019, I started working in the art school in Dublin. And then in March, we got shut down because of COVID. I can remember the um, Taoiseach at the time I think he was in New York, made an announcement saying that um, all the Irish education system was going to be shut down. To initially, it was, looked like it was only going to be for a few weeks, maybe two or three weeks. And of course, that ended up being stretched out. And yeah, we had a couple of years of disruption where a lot of our teaching and work went online. We had students all around Ireland and we had some international students as well. And they were working at home in all kinds of circumstances. So you had students, lucky students who were maybe living on farms down the country where they had access to workshops and they could engage in all kinds of making. And then you had students in inner city flats in Dublin where they were sharing a kitchen table with their other flatmates. It it was impressive, the creativity and the way people found to express themselves and to keep engaged in making. Although it was a tough time to get through, there was lots of kind of innovation and digital learning came out of it. We got some great visiting lectures online. So that was one thing that would never have happened, but for COVID, that we could get people to do presentations and lectures online from all around the world to our students. That's something that's carried on after COVID, which has been really beneficial. 
you're an educator yourself now. Do you think the way you were taught by Dorothy and Bill and Sue has inspired the way that you teach in any way? Definitely. We were just talking recently about the drawing projects that we're going to develop next year for the students. So that's something that definitely comes out of the time in Edinburgh. And I'm working with uh, Angelo Kelly in, in NCAD in Dublin as well, who's also an Edinburgh graduate. So it's great. We both remember the drawing classes and the importance that was put on the portfolio and how that was seen as a design tool and also as a way of developing your ability to, to kind of see the world and as a quick form of making in that you could think through many ideas on paper more rapidly than you can in materials. So that drawing was kind of valued on many different levels. And then I'd say also the demand and the focus on kind of quality of making as well. So there was always that in Edinburgh with Bill and Dorothy and Sue that they, you know, you were definitely expected to make things well and to put a lot of effort into them. I think studying with Bill was really useful as a preparation for me to go to Japan in that the Japanese expectation for high levels of craftsmanship is extraordinarily high. So having worked with Bill previous to Japan uh, set me up with that sort of expectation and high bar. Hopefully that's something we can bring to our students now. So while I was working in Sheffield, I met with uh, curator Sarah Roberts at an exhibition down in London. And Sarah had curated the chemistry set exhibition in the early 90s. And I can remember as a student, Dorothy showing me the catalogue for the chemistry set exhibition. And I was very interested in it because I was working with patination and, and mixed metals at the time. Sarah's exhibition, the chemistry set show, had looked at the impact of Michael Rose and Richard Hughes' book, The Colouring, Bronzing and Patination of Metals. It's like the default book for people who are interested in, in patination. While I was working in different workshops and visiting metal workshops around the world, I had always noticed that you'd see this book, Michael Rose's book, in all kinds of workshops. I saw it in Japan, in China, in Korea, Philippines, Thailand, India, all over the place. Sometimes you'd see it in people's workshops where they didn't speak English. The key thing about this book was that it had these lovely colour plates in the middle, really inspiring pictures of these beautiful patinations, which were linked to all the recipes. So Michael Rowe and Richard Hughes had dug out all these historical recipes and tested them and then taken nice pictures of the sample plates so that you could reproduce them in your, in your own work. Sarah's exhibition looked at the impact of that book about 10 years after it was published. It looked at it across jewellery, metalwork, and also looking at architecture and its use in advertising and things like that. So kind of a broad look, but mainly focused on the UK. So Sarah was interested in doing an exhibition that would look again at that area, sort of what's happening 20 years later. And we decided that we would look at um, a broader, more international viewpoint to look at what's happening with Michael's book and the UK scene, but also look at what's going on in, in different countries. And then because of my interest in Japan, we brought some Japanese artists into the show as well. Because that exhibition happened during COVID, we did online interviews with the artists and they're published on the National Design and Craft Gallery website. So in the interviews, the makers are very generous and forthcoming in their information about the materials and processes and how and why they do what they do. It's a really useful resource for students, I think, or for people who are, who are interested in the area. Sounds fascinating and such a useful resource. We'll include a link to that on the podcast project page on our website. But just to finish there and say thanks so much, Colleen, for taking part in the podcast. <laughs>